The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. As we continue in John 3 in today's passage, I do think the thesis statement by John the Baptist in verse 30, he must increase but I must decrease, is the crux of today's passage and the heart of today's teaching. And so what we'll look at today is what that statement means. What does it mean that he must increase, that I must decrease? Then we'll look at why he must increase, but I must decrease. And then third, we'll look at very, very practically how can he increase and I decrease. So what why and how. But before we get to those big three questions, we're going to look at the setting because as many of you know, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. So we'll look at the setting and make sure we understand what's before verse 30. Okay, so we're in John 3. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 1055 through 56. The title of today's sermon is Jesus Must Increase. Looking at the setting, we're picking up in verse 22 so that we understand where and when this is happening so that we can best draw from verse 30. Verse 22 tells us that Jesus and his disciples are in the Judean countryside, and he remains there, and his disciples, as we read in 4.2, are the ones doing the baptizing. What's worth noting here? What's worth understanding here? I think at least one thing. Remember, Jesus has been in the urban epicenter of Jerusalem. And when he was in the urban epicenter, the temple was so sordid and selfish and so far from true worship, he actually had to clear it. And now that he's gone from an urban area to a countryside, people are responding and being baptized. As an urban dweller, I admit the pattern has continued very often in one's receptivity to the message of the gospel in Christ alone. Jesus here now in the countryside is baptizing. And in verse 23 and 24, we find someone else is baptizing there as well, and that is John the Baptist, which leads to an apparent potential conflict. They're both there in the same place. Verse 24, I want you to notice them. It says, for John had not yet been put in prison. This reminds us of a couple important principles. First, this is the prime of John the Baptist's life. This is the prime of his ministry is this moment right here that we're about to read about. It also lets us know that John's gospel, unlike Matthew, Mark, and Luke, begins earlier in Jesus' public ministry. It begins while John the Baptist was still baptizing. Now verse 25, now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. I'll come back to these verses because I think they're so pivotal, but at this point at least notice this. A certain Jew is questioning, debating, challenging John the Baptist's disciples over their baptism. That's what the word purification is referring to at the end of verse 25. And yet instead of answering their inquiry over their baptism, notice what they instead speak about in verse 26. It seems like a very hard shift of topic. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing. And all are going to him. They're referring to Jesus. John, don't you know all of your followers are leaving you and they're going to Jesus? Are we okay with this? John answers in verse 27. 
A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. John then reasserts that he is not the Christ, but that leads us to verse 30. The key verse, I think, in this passage, he must increase, but I must decrease. And now we're ready for the first of our three questions. What does this mean? Why should this happen? And how does it happen? First question number one, and I have too many sub points. If you're a note taker, do your best. But underneath question number one, I'll give you three answers. What does this phrase mean that he must increase and I must decrease? Let's start with the obvious. First, it means that Jesus must increase. So the first half of verse 30 is using grammatical language to show that this is not an optional wish, but a necessary accomplishment. The word increase means to become more important, more significant, and to enjoy greater respect. What I'd like to show us from this passage today is that what John the Baptist is saying is not only true historically in his time and place, but is true eternally. Not only is John the Baptist saying around 30 AD near the Jordan River that Jesus must increase and John must decrease, but this is true for the entire created cosmos. Jesus must increase. That's why I say now the second point underneath what this means is the last half of verse 30. Not only John the Baptist, but all people must decrease. If increase means to have more significance, more prominence, and more respect, of course, decrease means to have less prominence, less significance, and less awe or worship. Now, John the Baptist at one level is surely speaking about himself. Remember in John 1, the Pharisees have come to him and said, why are you baptizing? Are you the Christ? And he said, no. Are you the prophet? Are you Elijah? And he said, no. Then why are you baptizing? And John quotes Isaiah. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. So at one level, you might say, well, John the Baptist has to decrease because he's a forerunner. His role is preparatory. But that's not all John the Baptist says. He not only ends because his role was one of four running, his decrease is because of more than that. Remember, John says, the person who's coming after me, his sandal strap, I am not worthy to untie. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the Son of God. He was before me and ranks above me. So John is saying there's something about Jesus that is so special, that is so categorically other, that not merely John, but all of us must decrease so that Jesus can increase. The decrease is because of Jesus' unique specialness. So let me say this to us right away. In order for Jesus to increase, all of us must appropriately decrease. We must diminish our self-perceived importance. We must decrease our self-ascribed awe. We must be second because Jesus is first. So let me think about why that's hard to hear in today's moment. In our cultural moment, where and when we live right now, self-ism, the increase of the self, the worship of the self, is so prevalent, it's an unchallenged virtue. It is so common, it is an assumed good. Put yourself first, 
Look out for number one. Express yourself. Believe in yourself. Be true to yourself. Follow yourself are very common messages in our cultural moment. Against that backdrop, we read Jesus say this later in the gospel. Unless you are able to deny yourself and take up your cross, you cannot follow me. Here we're prepared for that because John the Baptist rightly says, no, he must increase and and I must decrease. But selfism is not only an assumed virtue in our culture. Selfism is such a subtle and shape-shifting sin that it pervades even Christ's church. Even in the church, we can have a problem of self-elevation, making much of our perception, our territory, our respect, our memory, and our giftedness. We can view ourselves as irreplaceable, vital, and necessary. John the Baptist, in today's passage, not only steps aside as a forerunner, He's a servant who lays down his life so that Jesus can increase, even if it means I decrease. I'd further say, I think selfism is so sophisticated and subtle in its approach that it even can seep into seemingly academic approaches to Christian truth. And here's what I mean by that. I would encourage you, church family, to be very suspicious to any approach of reading the Bible, of gathered worship, of church life, of training curricula that causes Jesus to decrease and us to increase. Instead, what we learn here is that the principle of life is for Jesus to be exalted. And there's an inverse relationship of ourself impeding that process. So what does it mean? Well, it means Jesus must increase. Second, it means we must decrease. But now third, for Jesus to increase fulfills everything that God has promised. And this one will take me a second. So if you'll look down to verse 25 of John chapter 3, I'd like to demonstrate from the passage what I said I'd return to. This debate that's happening between this certain Jew and John the Baptist's disciples. Verse 25, now a discussion Perhaps you have a translation that puts it more accurately. Now an argument, now a controversy, now a debate. The Greek word actually means an investigation or inquiry. This is not a friendly conversation. The Jew is coming to John the Baptist's disciples and and he's challenging them. You should not be doing this. What is he challenging them over? Verse 25 ends in the ESV with purification. Perhaps you have a translation that says ceremonial cleansing. He's challenging over the way that John the Baptist is baptizing. He's saying you shouldn't be baptizing this way. This is not how the Pharisees baptize. This is not how we do this. Now you should notice you should have bells going off when you read the word purification. Because this has already been a debate between the Pharisees and Christ. Donald Guthrie writes, the unnamed Jew is concerned about ritual matters, calling for a distinction between John's baptism and Jewish ceremonial cleansing. So I don't want you to lose me. This is not a debate between the way John's disciples baptize and the way Jesus' disciples baptize. That's not where the conflict is. They baptize the same way. It's a conflict between the way John and Jesus' disciples baptize versus the way Jewish traditional ceremonial cleansing works. 
How does Jewish ceremonial cleansing work differently? Here are the two key differences. Jewish ceremonial cleansing is repeated and it's self-administered. I'm not baptized into faith in somebody else and I re-cleanse myself over and over and over. John's disciples and Jesus' disciples are doing something totally different. They're talking about a once-for-all baptism for the forgiveness of sins done in faith in the Messiah. That's why in John 1, John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God, referring to Jesus, who takes away the sin of the world. Baptism in his name is a signification of faith in his work to permanently remove our sins. This makes his baptism totally different. Now, John 3, verse 26, as I pointed out before, if you look at it with me, John 3, verse 26, if the question is over baptism, their response almost seems to make no sense. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. John the Baptist's disciples wonder, why is everyone going to Jesus? That seems to be the pressing concern. But in reality, these are related truths. A question over, can we really be baptized in Jesus' name, is very similar to, and can we really let people go follow Jesus? And the answer to both is yes. And that's why John answers this way in verse 27. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Now, if you've been tracking in John, Jesus turns the water into wine and the ceremonial jars once used over and over and over for cleansing are no longer usable. Their purpose has been completed. The temple where people were meeting and in reality, not worshiping in spirit and truth, Jesus displaces and says that he fulfills. He says, I am the temple. And here that same pattern has happened again. The ritual practice of ceremonial cleansing was anticipatory and now it is over because the one who cleans perfectly has come. The promise has been fulfilled because the provider is present. I'll just quote one author to put it this way. It was not only John who must decrease, but the old order which he represented. This is the point of Jesus' coming. He must increase because everything before him was just to prepare for him. And now he has come. All right, those were the three answers. To what does this sentence mean? Now I'm going to give you, these are too many points, five answers to why this must happen. Why must this happen? Why must Jesus increase? And why must we decrease? Here's the first answer. Because Jesus is the groom, and to him belongs the bride. Look now in verse 27. Well, actually, we just read 27 and 28. Please join me in 29. John the Baptist is answering why he's not upset about this. Verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John the Baptist is so excited that Jesus is increasing. Now, this could leave 
a question that perhaps you've been holding on to this whole time. You could say, Josh, you keep saying that Jesus must increase. That sounds okay. But you're also saying that I must decrease. That sounds less okay. I'm not sure how I feel about that. That sounds like worm theology, like you're trying to make too little of me. Won't that hurt my self-esteem? Let me try to help us think through this a little bit. One of the great privileges I have as a pastor is to officiate weddings on Saturdays unless there's college football on that day as well. (laughs) But when I get to officiate weddings, I love doing them. And one of the neat things about officiating weddings is the purview you receive to what's happening that day. That's a little different from what everybody else sees. Um, Let me give you an example of a bad sign. It's a bad sign at at the wedding. If the bride is a little so self-consumed that afterwards, though she smiles for all the pictures, she looks at the wedding album and she has none of the groom. That, That would not be good if afterwards it's only her. Now, here's a really good sign for a a wedding. When I get to stand up front and the bride comes down and everybody else looks at the bride, but the bride looks at the groom and the groom locks eyes with the bride. And it is so obvious that her joy is in his joy. Now, stick with me. Why, if we're the bride, would we be upset when the groom increases? His elevation is my elevation. He died my death. He rises from my resurrection. He prepares a place first for me to join him second. He returns to rule and reign and will be right behind him. His elevation is always our elevation. Of course, it's good news that Jesus must increase. Our fortunes are tied to him. So never be concerned Because the elevation of Jesus is only the denigration of my sin. It is the elevation of my glory. Revelation 19 says, Let us rejoice and exalt, like John the Baptist did, and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. When your bridegroom is the sacrificial lamb, you're thrilled when he increases. He's already given everything for your glory. All right, that's the first reason why he must increase. Here's the second reason. Look in verse 31. He must increase, friends, because he's above everybody. Verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. Who speaks in an earthly way? All of us because this is our origin and providence. You see, when Jesus speaks, it's categorically other. Self-help books with humane opinions only go as far as human reason. But when God the Son speaks, it's as perfect as the infinite wisdom of God. He's above all. All right, much more quickly, the third reason he must increase is in verse 32. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard And yet no one receives his testimony. Jesus, the word, perfectly testifies God's truth. That is the third reason why he must increase. Jesus, friends, is an eyewitness to eternity. He was there that the conversations of the triune God had discussed before creation was even conceived. From eternity past, he has perfect 
wisdom. Now, in verse 32, you could be confused. Wait, Josh, the text says no one receives his testimony. Are are, are you saying no one ever receives his testimony? Well, it always helps to keep reading. Verse 33 says the one who does receive his testimony. So it's obviously not eliminating everybody. But it is reminding us of a painfully true general truism. On the whole, people reject Jesus. In John 3, verse 11, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And he says, though we speak to you, you will not receive our testimony. In John 1, it says he came unto his own, and his own received him not. As a general truism, sadly, people reject the perfect Son of God. Verse 33 reminds us this does not have to be the outcome. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this. Picture putting the ring of your soul on the stamp of affirmation that Jesus is the Son of God. And notice the text logic. When you affirm Jesus is true, you affirm God is true. Conversely, John will say in 1 John 5, if you, if you reject Jesus is true, then you're calling God a liar. There's a connection between how we receive Jesus and whether or not we receive God. Here's the fourth reason. Jesus must increase. The fourth reason is because he has the spirit of God without measure. Look in verse 34. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. I understand in English it's hard to tell. Is it saying Jesus gives the spirit to other people without measure. And, and that's true, I think, in other passages. I think grammatically here, the text is saying God gives Jesus the spirit without measure, which is notable because in the Old Testament, people had the spirit of God in limited measure for limited purpose. Here, here Jesus has no limits to his purpose or power from the spirit of God. In Isaiah 11, verse 2, we're told, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and might, of knowledge and fear of the Lord. My favorite is Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. If, if, if you know your Bible very well, you know that in Luke 4, Jesus, as a 33-year-old man, got up on Saturday in the synagogue and opened the scroll and read that verse. And then he closed the scroll and sat down and said, Today, this has been fulfilled in your midst. How cool would it have been to be there that day? Number five, here's the fifth reason. Jesus must increase, verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. I know there are powerful religions across the world that are fine with God the Father, but don't like God the Son. They're okay with the idea of God, but they don't like Jesus. That'd be a little bit like if one of my children said to me, you know, Daddy... I like you a lot. You let us play games, but I don't like mommy very much. I'd say, son, if you don't love mommy, you don't love me because I love mommy. Look, if you don't love Jesus, you don't love God. God loves his son, loves his son. That is what it means to know the Lord. These are the five reasons why he must increase. But now the third and final section, how practically Should Jesus increase? And I want to show us some reasons from 
the text of how he increases in our life. How does he increase? Here's the first answer. Jesus will increase when I will joyfully decrease. Look again in verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. The friend of the bridegroom would be very similar to the best man in our weddings today, although he had more responsibility than our best men do today. Generally, we're very thankful if the best man shows up and has the ring. (laughs) Back then, though, and today, the best man has a role to make much of the groom. Have you ever been best man or maid or matron of honor? I was thinking over that today. I I, I think, in God's grace, I've been best man four or five times. The fact that I can't remember the fifth (laughs) is troubling. You know, something about that role, though, I was remembering some of the ones where I was best man for people that I'd grown up with, and we were very, very close, and I knew them for years. And when you're best man or maid of honor in a wedding like that, and you know that this person that you have known so well, they're so close to you, they mean so much to you, But today, they're up front, launching a new life. They're going to get in a car, and they're going to drive off. And their life is now about what their thing is, and you're decreasing. And if you're really their friend, you're really glad about them. This is awesome. This is a new life for them. This is a new start for them. This is what... God has for them, even though it means my relationship with them is not what it was. Notice the joy that John the Baptist has that his ministry is over. My ministry's over, and that's awesome because now is the time for God's Son. So let me show you a few things in the passage that are very specific, but they're actually here in the text. How practically, what practically would we do that would be a thing that God would use that when we do it with joy, Jesus will increase even as I appropriately decrease? Here's the first one. What has John the Baptist spent his life doing? Witnessing about Jesus. Have you ever witnessed to someone else about Jesus, told them who Jesus Christ is and why they need to turn from their sin and trust in Jesus to be saved. If you've ever witnessed, haven't you felt yourself decreasing while you're witnessing? Your fear of witnessing is always, what are they going to think of me? How am I going to be perceived? Where will I rank in their perception? But as you're witnessing, you're just decreasing and he's increasing. Here's another one right from the passage. I'm not putting it in here because I'm a Baptist pastor. I'm putting it out of here because it's already there. What are all these people doing that means that they decrease, but Jesus increases? They're being baptized. The water is plentiful there. They're going down into the water, and they're coming up saying, you know what? Jesus is first, and I'm second. He must increase. I must decrease. Have you been baptized? 
to say, you know, I am not first anymore. I have died, but now I've raised to life in him. He is first. I am second. Do you know baptism ends up being the key thing that the Pharisees will not do? In Luke 7, Jesus says, John's baptism, was it from heaven or earth? They don't want to answer because they're afraid of the crowds. In Matthew 21, Jesus again brings it up. Hey, the baptism, and they they push back again because they refused to be baptized because they refused to be second. Another thing from this passage, remember Jesus said in verse 32, it's like no one receives my testimony, but those who do receive it. So here's another way that Jesus increases and we decrease is when we receive his word. We receive it in faith. Jesus is right. He's telling the truth. I trust him. I submit to him. Even if I don't understand everything, I trust his wisdom. These are specific ways Jesus increases. Now I'm going to share a principle. It's, it's obvious. It's, it's in the text, but I want to tease it out a little bit. In the text, there's an inverse relationship on the scale When he's increasing, I'm decreasing. But the converse is true. When I'm increasing, he's decreasing. And if you grasp that principle and think about how it works its way out, so much of our relationship with the Lord hinges on it. In John 1, verse 16, John described Jesus this way, And of his fullness we have received grace upon grace. What keeps us from receiving grace upon grace? Upon grace, the elevation of ourself, the promotion of our pride becomes an obstacle to the grace of God that would flow to us from such a good Savior. Most of us go through life with the fear that people might think too little of us. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 went through life with the fear that people would think too much of him. In 2 Corinthians 12, verse 6, he said, I refrain so that no one may think of me more than he sees or hears from me. In order to receive the grace of Jesus, we must live in humble dependence on Jesus. Jesus will say this in John 15. I'm the vine. You are the branches. Apart from me, will you finish it? You can do nothing. He must increase by me humbly saying, I need you. I need you, Lord person cannot receive even one thing, John the Baptist said in verse 27, unless it comes from heaven. Now here I think is the way this principle practically will work out. Here's, I think, the best solution to us practically allowing Christ to increase and us to decrease. Here's what it is. Look to Jesus away from self. Look to Jesus. In verse 28 of this passage, John the Baptist said, I'm not the Christ, because he's looking to the Christ. Arthur W. Pink put it this way, humility is not the product of direct cultivation. Rather, it is a byproduct. The more I try to be humble, the less shall I attain unto humility. But if I'm truly occupied with that one who is meek and lowly in heart, If I'm constantly beholding his glory in the mirror of God's word, then shall I be changed into the same image from glory to glory by the power of the Spirit. See, the solution, friend, is to look away from self 
and to look to Jesus. Look at wonder with the Son of God who left heaven to come down for you. Look at joy as he emerges from the tomb and rises back to glory. Look with hope while you wait to see him face to face. William Carey, the well-known pioneer missionary to India, was dying, and in the room he had a friend, and he was sharing his funeral plans with his friend, and here's what he told his friend. When I am gone, don't talk about William Carey. Talk about William Carey's Savior. Now the watershed is in verse 36. Look at how this text concludes. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The Greek word apathon is translated obey in the ESV. You may have an English translation that translates reject or will not receive or believes not, and, and that is very helpful. What's being paralleled is believing in the Son versus rejecting the Son. Trusting the Son versus dismissing the Son. But even though I say that, um, please don't in any way infer that to receive Jesus is something you can do while at the same time having a plan to perpetually disobey Him. The only way in which we receive Jesus is one in which He is first, and I am joyfully submitted to that. This is why in John 14, verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, keep my commandments. In John 15, verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Verse 14 of John 15, You are my friends if you do what I command you. And 1 John 5, verse 2, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is love, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. A hallmark of Jesus being first and us being second is a joy in his wise and loving guidance. Now the text ends, verse 36, by saying something hard for our, in, our ears to hear. It says that those who reject Jesus will not see life, but that the wrath of God remains on them. For obvious reasons, the wrath of God is an unpopular thing for people to hear. And in our cultural moment, it maybe even is an aspect of God that we challenge as being true. Maybe it helps. I've tried to remind us that God's holy wrath is nothing like human anger. Unlike us, God is never reactive. It's not possible. He's not hot-headed. He's not aware of only partial facts or partial knowledge, and he never aims to get even. Instead, God is infinitely wise, loving in the execution of his perfect justice, and fully aware of all the facts and all the formative issues when he does execute justice. But because I think God's character is perfect, and I think ours is imperfect, allow me to push back at our objection a little bit. Is it not hypocritical that we live in a culture in which someone takes a video on their cell phone of something cruel or horrible, they circulate that heinous act online, 
And as a culture, we swiftly call for a consensus on justice. Even though we have a small sliver of awareness of the facts, we have no awareness of the motives. We have no clue to the generational formation that preceded it. And if we're honest, the sentence we normally swiftly call for advances our side by ruthlessly condemning the accused. How dare we impugn God's justice? Of course he has righteous wrath. It's just that his is holy, and it's totally unlike ours. Those who receive the Son have life, but to reject Jesus righteously condemns us eternally. Now in chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, we see the sadness of rejecting Jesus. Because by rejecting him, we push away the light that had come to bless us. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee. The Pharisees' resistance and jealousy of Jesus' growing ministry causes Jesus to move. But verse 4, if you know the geography, is nonsensical, and he had to pass through Samaria. Of course, Samaria is not on the way at all. It's totally out of the way. But what will happen in Samaria is what wasn't happening in Israel. The Samaritan woman at the well will receive him from whom everlasting water comes, and she'll share that with her compatriots, and they'll respond in faith. So this morning, I do want to tell you, Receive the Lord Jesus with a tender heart. Allow him to increase as our elevation is tied only to his. Let's pray together this morning. God, I pray that Jesus Christ would increase in this church, in the city of Raleigh, in the state of North Carolina, in the country in which we live. May his glory cover this globe like the waters. Father, he is worthy of praise from the depths of our soul every minute of the day. May the only thing that decrease be the thing that must decrease, our sin, our pride, our selfishness. Cause it to be destroyed. Lord, help us to have the grace of God from Jesus in such a way that we can respond unnaturally, but supernaturally like John the Baptist did, seeing that your sovereignty is good and that your wisdom is right and that your purpose for each one of our lives is kind and just and favorable. And Lord, help us to have a willingness then to serve the Lord Jesus's elevation. And at the most practical level, may we remember it's never about us. It's about him. So may the Lord Jesus be lifted up. Perhaps someone this morning has been wrestling with the idea that they would decrease so that Jesus could increase. And it is true. If we are going to come to Jesus, then our self must die. Jesus tells us such a wonderful but blunt truth. Unless you will deny yourself and take up your cross, you cannot follow me. But that is joyful news because if I am in him, then what is true of him is true of me.
So thank you for the bridegroom that died for our sin, rose over it, prepares a perfect home, rules in righteousness, loves us and will never leave us or forsake us, and brings us unto God perfectly and spotless. And may we come to him in faith, knowing that having him means having everything. In his name I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.